Oh my god. Okay, I'm gonna roll down the window so I can get a better look. I'm driving down Copley Road looking for the old Copley Theater. At least that's what it was back in the 40s. Didn't last long. A decade later, the old theater was gone. In its place, Akron's only combination TV radio station. So this is WAKR, where I used to work back in the day. WAKR Radio has long since moved to a new, more modern building. The old studios have been ravaged by time. The building is vacant, deteriorating. A local production company is making a spooky film that takes place on this street. I can understand where they got the idea. This part of Copley Road feels creepy. WAKR TV 23, Akron Canton. Definitely creepy. I remember when that woman was attacked. That woman was a fellow employee at WAKR. She was attacked by a man as she walked to her car around the time Phyllis was carjacked. It was scary. As I continued to cover the Cottle case, I was assigned to Plum Beat, the police beat. I went down to Akron PD every morning. I skimmed through reports. I established sources who might confidentially tell me what was going on in Akron, especially with the Cottle case. The cops downtown told me, and everybody else, to be careful. Security measures were put into place all over the city. That included TV 23 WAKR. And that's why they put up this fence because they wanted to better protect the employees as they walked outside to their cars. Some women took self-defense courses to protect themselves. I learned to carry my keys between my fingers like brass knuckles in case anyone tried to carjack me. A good thing in retrospect. The prime suspect in Phyllis's attack lived a walk away from WAKR. Yeah, that's where Samuel Herring used to catch the bus to go to his parole board. It's just creepy to know he was always so close to me physically, right? It just goes to show that, just by chance, Phyllis was the one. Phyllis had been abducted less than a mile and a half from WAKR. I'm Carol Costello. This is Blind Rage, Episode 7, A Suspect. Detectives had a suspect, Samuel J. Herring. They knew Herring had signed in to see his parole officer on March 20th. That put him in the area of the 1286 bar, not far from where Phyllis's car had been set on fire, where three people, the bar's manager, bartender, and a regular, the fabulously named Chili Mo, witnessed an agitated man who fit Herring's description. A cab driver later dropped that agitated man off near Herring's parole office. Herring's behavior in the parole office was suspicious. He signed in at 4 o'clock when he'd actually arrived at 4.10. He left his gym bag in the lobby instead of taking it with him to meet with his parole officer where the bag could be legally searched. All of that intrigued Detective Chris Contos. He got on the phone and called his lieutenant, Lieutenant Stemple. I'm not familiar with Sammy. And I didn't even ask the parole officer yet if he has a, what kind of record he has, but he had to have a serious record to be on parole. And I, I called that's what I called Lieutenant Semple and told him, I said, are you familiar with Sammy Herring? And he says, oh, yes, he's been around. Oh, yeah. Sammy Herring had been around. He committed his first crime when he was a child, 11 years old. He would commit seven more crimes before he turned 18. Crimes like destruction of property, throwing stones, assault and battery, cutting to wound and felonious assault. 
all of those crimes had an element of aggression, an element of violence. I can find no record that a child named Samuel Herring received psychiatric care. I do know Herring came from a broken family. He was poor, black, and obviously in need of help. Here's criminologist Casey Jordan. To me, that indicates when you have a police record starting at age 11, that this isn't just uh, nature versus nurture, <laughs> because we have different percentages of nature and nurture in all of us, free will versus the fact that we are, to a certain extent, a product of our environment. He would have been a product of his environment, but I have no doubt that he suffered from some sort of organic issues, a mental illness. But I suspect that if circumstances had been different and resources available and services available, he would have very likely been diagnosed from a very young age. Who knows? ADHD, uh, could have had a schizotypal personality, but he's a smooth operator. So by the time he's in his 20s, uh, he appears to have elements of an antisocial personality disorder. He, he can talk smoothly, but show absolutely no remorse while he is committing horrific violence. According to the American Psychological Association, people of color, especially back then, were more likely to be ushered into the criminal justice system. And that's what happened. Herring served time in juvenile detention over and over and over. And he continued his life of crime into adulthood. I'm looking through Herring's adult criminal record now. It started right back up when Herring turned 18. Grand theft. Less than a year later, Criminal damaging, then assault. Let's see, what else is in here? He, he shot a man in the stomach in 1975. He got two to 15, but he got out early. He was paroled in 1978 and promptly committed another violent crime. By this time, Herring was considered what was then known as a super predator. They say it takes three years of hard time incarceration uh, before a convict becomes an inmate. And what that means is that they become institutionalized. They accept that even if they get out of prison, uh, they will never have a normal life. They will always lead a life of crime because no one will ever give them a job. No one will ever want to date them. No one will ever uh, want anything to do with them. I mean, the phrase we use in criminology is they become crusted over. They become unfeeling, unremorseful, like kind of all in with a poker game, except that that's an everyday thing to just live very high risk. In 1978, the judge threw the book at Herring. He was sentenced five to 25 years. And you guessed it. Herring would not serve 25 years behind bars or even five years. By January of 1984, after serving four and a half years, Herring was a free man. But he was clearly a violent person. Yes. Why was he free? Why was he free? Why was he free? Because Why the pro the, the parole board let him out. Bob Bulford was the director of the Career Criminal Program in 1984. That program accelerated under the Law and Order Reagan administration. Under the program, repeat offenders were meant to stay behind bars longer. At the same time, the prison population boomed. Prisons became overcrowded, and that meant some dangerous people had to be released early. As director of the program, the parole board was still required to get Bulford's input before they freed anyone. I pulled his file 
And I looked at it, and, and of course, the file in the prosecutor's office at that time, I mean, it had his prior record in it. And, and I said, Fred, I, obviously, we got to pose this. He says, yeah. And so I wrote a letter. Basically, I believe what I said in the letter was, you know, he has a lengthy record. His last offense involved a burglary where he had a knife, and he's not above confronting people. And if you let him out, he's going to hurt somebody. Bulford's letter also insisted that Herring receive psychiatric care. It never happened. And I remember when they were doing the investigation and his name came up and they saw that they said Sam Herring. And I thought, wait a minute, that's really familiar. And then I said, you know, I just wrote a letter about this guy. And when I saw that he was at the parole office at four o'clock, we're thinking, well, he's a pretty good suspect, isn't he? A pretty good suspect, except for one thing. Herring never served time for rape or sexual assault. The most violent crimes he was convicted of involved men. More when we return. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder... All this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Here's Casey Jordan. Now, the interesting thing is that he had no record for this kind of crime in the past, but we can't just accept that he's never done this before. It could be he's done it many times and the crimes were never reported to the police or uh, the pol if, if he was, for instance, attacking sex workers in the past or drug addicts in the past. These sorts of vulnerable victims, number one, usually don't report it to the police because they just kind of consider it an occupational hazard of the lifestyle they lead. So that may have actually bolstered his courage to continue escalating and doing it. Akron police paid Herring a visit at his sister's house. He wasn't there. Detectives left a card and asked him to come talk with them. A few days later, Herring obliged. He sat down with detectives, answered their questions from the police reports. Mr. Herring said, I've been out of the Ohio State Penitentiary for two months. I don't smoke or drink. I'm an amateur boxer. 
As for where Herring was between noon and 4.30 on March 20th, Mr. Herring told officers, I cooked and watched the beginning of a movie, Death Wish, or maybe Magic, or Ten Till Midnight. I don't remember which one. I left the house between 2 and 2.30, walked down Copley Road, and caught the bus near WAKR to the parole office. He added, I had nothing to do with the lady that got raped. I'm just trying to be a boxer and get to the Olympics. Police asked to keep Herring's jacket. He handed it over. Police placed it in a brown paper bag marked evidence. They also noted Herring had an inch-long scar on his left hand below his thumb. Herring also told police he would be glad to take a polygraph exam. But I want my lawyer present. It would have been so simple to prove Herring was a good suspect had Phyllis's sight returned. She could have identified him or not in a police lineup. But that was out. What about his voice? Detective Contos thought about it. He could record various suspects' voices and ask Phyllis to listen to them, sort of like an audio police lineup. Miss Cottle was asked if she could identify this person's voice, to which she replied, I've thought about it a great deal. I'm not positive I could identify his voice. There was really nothing outstanding about it. I do know that it was a rather smooth type of voice. There was no dialect or accent or anything like that. Because of that, Kantos nixed the idea. Too unreliable. He stuck with the plan. He would continue to investigate this case like a homicide. So police released two sketches of the suspect, one drawn with the help from someone at the 1286 bar, the other sketched with the help of the bank teller. I have both of those composites in front of me. They look nothing alike. Nothing. The shape of their faces, their noses and eyes are all different. On the 24th, detectives upped the game. They brought in the 1286's manager, the bartender, and Chili Moe. The bartender looked at a photo array that consisted of seven pictures. Included in that array was a picture of Samuel Herring. The bartender studied the photos intently. He asked the detective to put a hat on them, like the man in the bar. The detective used his fingers to cover part of the suspect's foreheads. It was the best he could do. The bartender paused and then picked out Herring's picture along with another man's photo. The 1286's manager looked at the photos, pointed to Herring's picture, but could not say with 100% certainty that Herring was the man she had seen in the bar. Then it was Chili Moe's turn. Detectives had high hopes that Chili Moe would come through for them. Not only had he given detectives the best description of the suspect, but he told them if he saw the guy again in person, he could definitely ID him. Chili Moe studied the photos and then studied them some more. He turned to detectives and said, sorry, I don't recognize any of these guys. That troubled prosecutors. Here's Fred Zook. Big part of our case, putting him in that area. We knew we could put him in a parole office, but we didn't know we could put him up the street. And I am sure that there were some real defects in the pretrial identification process. I don't mean improper defects, just that the guy didn't pick, either didn't pick him or was leaning towards another photograph. That complicated their case. And it's why many prosecutors today do not depend on photo arrays to ID suspects. Here's Emily Pelfrey. Why, why was there a move away from photo arrays? What were the problems? 
I think that you have people that, and you see it in this case, right? I mean, you have people that, did they see him? Did they not see him? And you have all of these different answers. So from either side, I don't know that I would want to really rest my entire case on an identification when for every person that's identified him as a suspect, you have another person that's identified somebody else. So how is that going to help anyone, really? It's kind of a wash. Prosecutors depend more on physical evidence like fingerprints or blood or other bodily substances, all things in short supply in Phyllis's case. Akron detectives tried hard to find those things. They located two withdrawal slips that Phyllis's attacker had sent through the bank's vacuum tube and struck out. No fingerprints. The lab tests on Phyllis's clothes came back inconclusive. There was still no knife no fibers. They didn't even have a witness who saw Phyllis being carjacked on West Exchange Street. Detectives needed one more big break. They needed to find that house, two streets away from a bright blue house with a black eagle, and they needed to find it now. Next week, Blue House, Black Eagle. You can't cross-examine that house. It's, in my opinion, the strongest part of this case. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and rate it on your favorite listening apps. And discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. And if you want to discover more about this case, follow me on Instagram at Carol Costello. You'll find pictures of Phyllis, newspaper reports, crime scene photos, and more. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyjah Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder. Our voice of the court is Douglas F. Bailey II. All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.